So we're on session seven of how we got our Bible. Last time we were looking at the King James Version. We'll do a little review on that this morning because um, we went through it fairly fast and didn't quite get finished. It's hard to know how much time to spend on the King James Version. Up until recent years, it was certainly the most important translation in English. Uh, I grew up with the King James Version, like most people in my age and so forth. That was the only Bible we used, the only Bible I really knew. Until I went off to Bible college and then seminary and so forth and began to use other Bibles and so on. And the King James Bible was the best-selling Bible. We talked about last time the Geneva Bible, 1560, was very popular until uh, the Geneva Bible went out of print about 1640. The King James then began to dominate. It was the best Bible of its day. It was superior to all these other previous Bibles. It was a revision of these previous Bibles. And so it was superior, it was better, and it dominated right up until recent times. Until about 20 years ago, the King James was no longer the best-selling Bible in the world. The best-selling Bible in the world today is the NIV. But that took about 400 years to happen <laughs> to displace the King James Version. So it was the most popular, most widely used. I spent a lot of time on it because there has risen, mainly in this country, mainly it became really popular in the 70s and 80s and so on, is this King James Only movement which says that the King James Bible is, is that Bible is only, that's the only Bible that's the Word of God. Only the King James Version is the Word of God. No other Bible is the Word of God. No other Bible is authoritative. Now, when you look at this in light of the history, it falls apart because the King James translators themselves make a lot of statements, as we saw briefly last week, that dispel that kind of thinking, that argue against that kind of thinking. So we're looking at this early modern period in translation, 1475 to 780. We've looked at these previous translators. They're all built upon one another. That is, they didn't think about themselves as using new Bibles. Uh, Today, there's copyrights on all kinds of Bibles. And so you can't just say, I'm going to take the NIV and I'm going to modify it and I'm going to make some changes and I'm going to publish it. You, you, You wouldn't be able to do that. Every Bible is copyrighted. And really for good reasons. If you don't copyright your Bible, somebody could take it and distort it and publicize it as as that Bible and, and, and deceive a lot of people. They could, you know, you can make heretical changes and so forth. So, but th- there was no copyright. These Bibles basically built upon one another. Because we have Tyndall's work, Coverdale, Matthew was John Rogers, you remember, and that was Coverdale's assist. They were his assistants. The Great Bible was the first Bible authorized in the Church of England. That was done by Coverdale and others. Then the Geneva Bible we talked about a lot. That was done by those English Protestants who were in Geneva, who had fled because Mary had come to the throne and brought back the Roman Catholic Church in England. And then, of course, Elizabeth came to the throne, and these Bibles could be printed in England again because she brought in the Anglican Church for before settled that question and uh, produced the Bishop's Bible, 1568, because the Geneva Bible was so popular, the, the, it was more popular than the Great Bible was, but, but the Bishop's Bible, as we said, really didn't uh, do it. It wasn't that well done. 
it didn't displace the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is still the most popular Bible in the home. If people bought a Bible, they have the Geneva Bible. But the King James Bible then was designed to replace that. Remember King James came to the throne, James I, after Elizabeth's death, came to the throne in 1603. He was the king of Scotland already. He was James VI of Scotland. He was already the king of Scotland. And because he was related to the royal line, related to Elizabeth, and she had no heirs, he was asked to become King James I of England, which he did. And it was under his sponsorship that the King James Version was produced. The man who headed that up, remember we said, was Richard Brancroft. He, was, he had initially been sort of opposed to this translation. Remember they had a conference at Hampton Court Palace when King James first came to England, and uh, the Puritans proposed a new translation. Remember in the Church of England, we said that Elizabeth had engineered this Elizabethan compromise, an uneasy compromise between the Catholics and the Protestants. Uh, the Church of England is, is a Protestant church. It's not a Roman Catholic church, but it has a lot of elements still left over from Roman Catholicism. And so the Puritans wanted to purify this church. And uh, Bancroft uh, was initially opposed to this, but then he, he, when the king said, we're going to do it, he said, okay, we'll do it. And so uh, they began work on this translation, the King James 1611. It wasn't called the King James Version until much later, at least a hundred and some years later did anybody call it the King James Version, yes. Was this guy Bancroft, was he a um, religious person or yes. a, a, not a scribe, but a literature? He was a scholar. Okay. Uh, Bancroft, Bancroft was a scholar. Uh, he, um, I was going to... Uh, I guess I didn't, I don't know if I said anything about him in particular last time or not. Um, um, he was the Bishop of London, I should have said. So he was a bishop in the Anglican Church. So he was a scholar and a bishop. And so he was assigned by the king to sort of head up this project. Uh, Ron was asking me last time, Ron Biggs, about this question here because it wasn't clear last time. Because I noticed, if you look at this, uh, if you look at the title page of the King James Version here, we're looking at this title page right here, it does say, uh, concerning the Old and New Testament, newly translated out of the original language, out of the original languages, tongues, I'm sorry, with the former translations, translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's Special Commandment. So it kind of looks like it's a new translation, but it's not a new translation. It's a revision. Remember, Bancroft had these rules. The Bishop's Bible is to be followed as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. And so what they did was they printed 40 copies of the Bishop's Bible, which was the Bible authorized to be used in the Church of England, printed 40 copies unbound. And the translators used those. They worked from those. They didn't start out and just write a new translation. They worked from the Bishop's Bible and made changes. Now, they did look at the Greek and Hebrew. So it is based on the Greek and Hebrew. They looked at the Hebrew text. They looked at the Greek text. So they were looking at the Greek and Hebrew and the, and the English that they had, 
and they were making changes to the Bishop's Bible where they thought it was necessary based upon the rules that Bancroft had set up. You're supposed to change as little as possible, but where it's necessary, where there are errors, where there are modifications, where there are improvements, where better style and so forth, they want to make changes. So it is based on the original languages. They're looking at the original languages, but it's not a totally fresh translation. You're just modifying the Bishop's Bible as you go along, which in the Bishop's Bible is a modification of the previous Bibles itself. Remember we said the King James Version, I mentioned this, uh, I didn't say much about it, had paragraphs, uh, because remember they put in these verses, and if you look here, in the, like the King James, every verse is a new paragraph. Every verse is indented. And the King James Version did have paragraph marks here. You can see the mark right here, Acts 20, 36. I said it was kind of an odd thing because... The paragraph marks end at Acts 20.36. What happened to the rest of the New Testament? Somebody forgot to put them in, you know. But, you know, paragraph marks are very nice because we think in units of thought. We think not in individual verses, but in paragraphs. The NIV that we use, New International Version, is set off in paragraphs. Now, there's nothing in the Greek text to indicate where those paragraphs are. These are put in by the translators, but often there, well, I should say there's nothing. There are things to indicate. There are units of thought, there's conjunctions and so forth to indicate we're talking about a new section. Because sometimes, you know, you, people can just read a verse out of context. So you're trying to read in context generally. And paragraphs can help. Because you see, okay, this verse is part of a paragraph. Let me read the whole paragraph here and not just the verse. And I was just saying, the King James Version, even though it's marked off as individual verses, had these paragraph marks originally to indicate we think a new unit of thought is here. And that's going to be a big thing, paragraph markings in future Bibles. It's going to be an issue that we'll encounter again. We notice they had a preface, an introduction, the translator to the reader. And I read some of that last week. I just wanted to review a few things again because it's important in this discussion of is the is the King James only the Word of God? Is only the King James the Word of God? So we'll have people come to this church when I was in the, I'm new to this church, new in the sense of new member, but when I was in the new mem, the new member's orientation, newcomer's orientation, <clears throat> we had some people who were King James only, I know, because they asked about it. And when they found out we weren't, they didn't come back. <laughs> they, they came to the newcomer's orientation, but they weren't interested in staying because we did not hold that only the King James translation is the Word of God. We believe that other accurate translations are also can also be called the Word of God. And so did the King James translators believe that, as we'll see. So you remember, they start talking, first of all, about the question of a new translation. And we hear that constantly from King James-only people. They'll say, why do we need a, good, a new translation? The King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul. Why isn't it good enough for us, right? <laughs> so, you know, why do we need another translation? The King James is facing that too. Because they say, you know, many men's mouths have been open for a good while with speeches about translations so long in hand. Our perusals of translations made before. And ask, what may be the reason? What's the necessity of these new translations? Has the church been deceived? They say, all the while by the previous Bibles, was their translation good before? 
If the Bishop's Bible was good, why do they now mend it? Was it not good? Why was it then presented to the people? And they answer, nothing is begun and perfected at the same time. There's nothing wrong with the Bishop's Bible. It is the Word of God. But it's not perfect. It's not a perfect Bible because it's done by human fallible people. They're doing the best they can, but nothing is perfected, begun and perfected at the same time. And the latter thoughts are thought to be wiser. So we're building upon their foundation that went before us. And we're helped by their labors. We endeavor to make that better which they left so good. For by this means it come to pass that water is sound already, and the same will shine as the same will shine as gold more brightly, being rubbed and polished. So we're just improving our previous English translations. If anything be halting or superfluous or not so agreeable to the original. The King James trainers are looking at the Bishop's Bible, but they're looking at the original Greek and Hebrew too. So they're they're saying is okay, can we improve this? Bible translation is a big project, it's a big book. A lot of things can go wrong. And even in the King James Version, things went wrong. And I'll show you some of those wrongs in a moment. Yes? I'm, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, Bill. I haven't been here in a while. And I, like I said, I, I might have missed a lot of these different lessons and everything. But uh, when it comes to NIV, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm a New American Standard man. But uh, where did it, where did, I, I see these Bibles were actually built upon each other. Where did, where did the NIV come from? It was a fresh, brand new translation, not built upon any other Bibles. Now, the, the new American I'll show you in just a moment. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. But we'll get to it in detail, but I, I've got a slide to, sh- to talk about the New American Standard in a moment here. We don't run out of time here. <laughs> <laughs> this or in the 1611 still have the Apocrypha? Yeah, 1611 had the Apocrypha. So I just looked at the church website and it said King James Old it's in 1611. Yeah. And I bet they don't. No, they don't call the Apocrypha. Right. None of the King James Old people hold the Apocrypha. So they're quoting the wrong date. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Now, as to the latter we answer, we don't deny that we affirm and avow that the very poorest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God. So those previous Bibles, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, covered it, they are the word of God. No cause, therefore, why the word translator should be denied to be the word of God. So the point is, if a translation is done faithfully and generally accurately, we can call it the word of God. That's the, that's the point. He says, for whatever was perfect under the sun were apostles or apostolic men, that is, men endued with extraordinary measure of God's spirit and privileged with the privilege of infallibility had not their hand. You can't expect those previous Bibles to be perfect because they weren't done by the Apostle Paul. We know Romans is perfect because Paul was under inspiration. He was inspired to write Romans. But the Bishop's Bible was not, not translated by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration was a one-time act. It happened when Paul wrote Romans. That when Moses wrote Genesis. It's not happening anymore. Yet before we end, we must answer a third cavil, an objection, for altering and amending our translation so often. Well, they deal hardly and strangely with us. For to whomever was it imputed for a fault to go over that which he hath done and to amend it where he saw cause? Shouldn't be a problem. We never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make a bad one good, but to make a good one, the bishop's Bible, better. Or out of many good ones, the Coverdale, the bishops, the Great Bible, Tyndall, one principal good one. 
Now, on the, your, your notes there, um, we were, last time, we got to about this point here where we were talking about uh, marginal notes. We said a little bit about that. I just mentioned that again, that one of the things the King James only people will say is, we don't like these new Bibles because they have marginal notes in them. And it'll say, it could be translated this way or could be translated that way. Well, it can only be translated one way if you're a King James only, and that's the way the King James has it. You know, that's the way it is. So they don't like any marginal notes. But the King James had these marginal notes. And they say, uh, you know, some would have no variety of senses to be set in the margin. That is different translations, different ways to translate. If you look at your NIV sometime, you'll see in the margin, say it could be translated this way or that way. There's different possibilities of translation. Lest the authority of scriptures for the deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty should somehow be shaken. That's exactly what the King James people say. They say we shouldn't have any variety of senses in the margin. Because if we have variety in the senses of a margin, then the authority of Scripture for dealing with controversies will be shaken. What do the King James translators say? But we hold their judgment not to be sound in this point. We don't, we don't hold that at that point. Therefore, as St. Augustine said, variety of translations is profitable for running out the sense of Scriptures. So diversity of signification and sense in the margin where the text is not so clear must needs to do good. Yea, is necessary, as we are persuaded. They that are wise would rather have their judgments at liberty in difference of readings than to be captivated by one when it may be the other. So they had 8,422 marginal notes. A lot of marginal notes. Now these are both basically gone. If you pick up a King James Version today, you won't see these marginal notes. You'll see a few, but they're put in by modern editors, modern uh, modern marginal notes. They're not the marginal notes of the King James Version. They don't have those 8,000 marginal notes in there. And that's a lot of notes. Remember, and the, the the rules for the King James Version said, don't put a lot of marginal notes in. Because <laughs> the, the Geneva Bible was a study Bible. It had just tons of notes in the margin, all kinds of notes. But it still had a lot. And here's Luke 17, 36. I say this because they had a note that says, this verse, this verse is wanting in most of the Greek copies. That is verse 37. That is, this verse is only in a few manuscripts. Out of those 5,000 manuscripts, it's only in a few. So the King James acknowledges, you know, we, we've got the verse in here because traditionally it's been in, it's in the Latin Vulgate, and so we've got it in here, but we don't think it's really original. We're not, we're not, we're not sure it's really original in, in Luke 17, 36. This, this same thing is said in the Matthew passage, so it's there in the Matthew passage. It's probably not here in the Luke passage. So if you look at your NIV, you'll notice there's no verse 36 in your NIV. No Luke 17.36. It jumps from verse 35 to verse 37 there. Because there's hardly any manuscripts that have that. The overwhelming majority, 5,000 plus, don't have it. Don't have that particular verse there. So the King James traders are acknowledging that point right here in the margin. So the King James Version... 
replaced the Bishop's Bible as the version to be used in the Church of England. So it's the authorized version of the Bible to be used. Now, if you actually look at historical records, there is no actual historical record of that authorization. The records for those years were burned in a fire, unfortunately. But it's clear that it replaced the Bishop's Bible as the authorized version. Um, As I say here, like all versions before it, the 1611 edition contained a number of printing errors. I just point that out because, again, we have our friends, the King James, all your friends, who say... We believe in the 1611 King James. And you mentioned, well, the Apocrypha, they don't like that, right? But, you know, this is just to be expected. You're printing a big Bible. You're going to have printing errors, right? I mean, it's very hard to come out, you know. It's very hard even when we have computers. And this was set by hand, you know. So, you know, Matthew 16, 25, his is repeated. Well, I'm sure the King James, the only people don't think that's right, you know, but that's the 1611 King James, I'm just saying. Exodus 14.10, you've got some extra words. It's just a printing error that happened, you know, not just an accidental kind of thing that happened. But our King James only friends say it's the 1611. That's the inerrant, infallible Bible and so forth. A, uh, A 1631 edition of the Bible, of the King James left out the word not. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt commit adultery. (laughs) (laughs) November the 11th, 11th, one of these Bibles came up for sale. I tried to find out who bought it, but it was advertised on the internet, November the 11th. They wanted between 10,000 and 15,000 pounds for this Bible. So maybe $20,000, $30,000, you know, for for this. They were asking an auction they're auctioning the Bible off. This is where I got the picture. They took a picture of that page from the 1631 called the Wicked Bible. There was another Bible called the Murderer's Bible because Mark 7, 27, it's supposed to be read, let the children be filled. Let the children be filled. And it says, let the children be killed. Somebody got the wrong letter there. And we got the, the Murderer's Bible. Um, I mentioned here that Like all previous versions, you know, it was not well received at first. People don't like new Bibles, whatever it is. Even the 1611 was not liked very well. Uh, One of the most famous critics was a man by the name of Dr. Hugh Broughton. He was a, a tremendous scholar of his day. He was kind of a rambunctious guy. He was loud mouthed. People didn't like him much. And he didn't put him on the committee to translate. So you've got to take this, remember, he's kind of mad. But he, he said, the late Bible was sent, so he, he, he was, the late Bible was sent to me to censure, and that's the old English word means to review. The Bible was sent to me to review, which bred in me a sadness that will grieve me while I breathe. It is so ill done. Tell his majesty that I had rather be written pieces of wild horses than any such translation by my consent should be urged upon poor churches. The new edition crosseth me, I require it to be burnt. So there were there was opposition at first. Um, the apocrypha was included. A lot of people didn't like the apocrypha. The first edition in 1782 in America did not contain the apocrypha. 
Remember, in the colonial days, you couldn't print a Bible in America. You didn't, the king didn't get permission. There were no Bibles printed in America. You had to get your Bible from England. But once the revolution, then the people started printing their own Bibles. And in America, America is more of a Protestant country, anti-apocrypha. So Bibles printed there didn't have the apocrypha. Uh, Bibles in England had to have the apocrypha. The Archbishop of Canterbury issued a decree in 1615 that if any printer left out the apocrypha, he would be fine. Because what you could do is, if you want, Protestants didn't want the apocrypha. They didn't believe in it. So all these Protestants, these Calvinists, these Presbyterians, these Baptists, they didn't want the apocrypha. So what you could do is just just not print those pages or leave them out. You could bind the Bible to be cheaper, right? You don't have to print those pages. You can sell people a cheaper Bible. So the printers, they're entrepreneurs. They want to make money. So they want to sell these Bibles without the apocrypha, but the Church of England forbid, forbade that uh, that printing of Bibles, but not in America. What about revisions of the King James Version? There have been a number of revisions. So today we're not using the 1611 King James Version. As I say, when the King James was first published, there was actually two printed editions with 450 variations in the text. So even when it was first printed, in 1611, in the year 1611, there were revisions. The most, uh, usually there are thought to be two editions in 1611. They're called the He Bible and the She Bible. So there's a He King James Version of 1611 and a She Version 1611. So an expert... In Bibles, the first thing, the first verse he's going to look at, if he had a 1611, is through 315, to see is this a he or a she? Which one is it? Because it'll say, he went into the city and she went. Does it Boaz who went in the city or is it Ruth who went into the city? One of those two. The NIV has he there. It's usually thought that the he is the first Bible and she was printed later. She was changed and printed later. So he was he is thought to be the older 1611 Bible, and she the later 1611 version. But it's a textual problem there, and it's still seen today. The ESV has she there. The New American Standard has she there. The NIV has he there in that particular case. In 1612, there were minor changes. 1613, 413 improvements. Then we have what we call the first major revision, 1629, Cambridge. Second major revision, 1638, Cambridge revision. This was done by people who served on the committee even. Dr. Boyes, Dr. Ward. Third major revision, 1762, you see that on your notes? Okay. 1762. Then the fourth major revision. That's the revision we're using today. 1769 by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. So a lot of revision went on from 1611 to 1769. So when people say, I want the 1611 Kings James, they don't really. The Bible you go, if you go and buy one, is basically a 1769 fourth edition by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. It's I couldn't get this getting big here, but I'll try to read it to you. So if you look at a 1611 over here, this is 1611, and this is the modern. 
There, there, there are differences. And I just put some here. Like in Genesis 13, 39, 16. Until, until her Lord came home, until his Lord came home. Well, that's different, isn't it? One says her Lord, one says his Lord. So a modern version says his. Uh, 26, Deuteronomy 26, 1. Which the Lord giveth, which the Lord thy God giveth. I mean, it doesn't change the meaning of the text that much, right? But it's different, right? It's not the same. Uh, you get down here, you get a big one, like 1 John 5, 12. And he that hath not the Son hath not life. That's what the original 1611 have. But the the one you use now, the one we use now says, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's different, isn't it? One has the Son, one has the Son of God. I'm just saying, there's about 2,000 changes, about 2,000 changes in meaning since 1611 in our modern King James versions. About 2,000 changes. So we're using the 1611, we're not using the 1611, we're using the 1769, fourth revision by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. Now, I don't enjoy pointing this out, but I point it out because of our King James only friends. There are still errors in the King James Version today. There are still errors. This is probably, most likely, a printing error that's never been corrected in the King James Version. So I, I, I show you this by looking at all the previous versions, like Tyndall. You blind gods would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So it's talking about straining out something, filtering out something. That's what the Greek means. The Greek word means to strain out, to filter out. You filter a gnat out of your food. You strain a gnat out of your soup, but you swallow a camel, right? The Great Bible. You strain out. The Geneva, where you strain out. Bishop, strain out. King James, strain at a gnat. Well, straining at means to strain at, to look at. You know, it doesn't... There's actually straining at something and straining out something. So that's an error in the King James that's just never gotten... Probably a printing error between A-T and O-U-T. Somebody just, you know, printed it wrong, just put the wrong thing in there accidentally and did it. Here's a more stranger one that's uh, hard to figure out. Tyndall says, let us keep the profession of our hope without wavering. Let us keep the profession of our hope, the profession of our hope, the profession of our hope, the profession of our faith, King James says. Well, the Greek word there is elpis, hope. It's not pistis, faith. Faith is pistis. It's not, it's not pistis there. There's no Greek manuscript here. There's no, there's no difference in all the Greek manuscripts. They all say the same thing. They say, they say hope, elpis. For some reason, the King James has faith there. And this is always a problem for our King James friends. They will try to defend this. They will try, they'll try to say, okay, I know it's the Greek word for hope, but the King James translators understood that in this case it means faith. But the problem is, every other time the King James translators translate Elpis, they translate it hope. <laughs> every other time, you know, they translate it hope. So somehow this just got got mixed up. Just mixed up. It should be. So if you look at a modern translation, they'll all say profession of confession or profession something of our hope, not faith. 
Well, there's the early modern period, 1745 to 1780. We've got Tyndall, Geneva, bishops, King James 1611, and the King James we're using now, 1769, right? Fourth edition. Now let's look at the later modern period, 1780, up until now. Now we're in the later modern period of English, 1780 until the present. The first thing we need, notice, is the need for updating. Even though the King James was updated some, 1769, by the late 1800s, some people were beginning to say, this Bible has got archaic language, it needs to be updated, we found new manuscript finds, various things. So the uh, couple of issues that they, de- that they were concerned about was the archaic language. Archaic means old. The language of the King James is basically 1611. You know, it's updated some, but by 1800, it's a little hard to understand. I mean, and Jacob saw pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Exodus 19, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. Really. For who can eat, or who else can hasten thereunto more than I? Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. Dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. I trow not. Well, I just pointed out some places where the language is a little archaic, it's a little old, it's a little difficult to understand because English has changed. Words changed. I mean, if you've lived as long as Ron has, (laughs) and I have, we know the language has changed since we were young. I mean, there's just new words, there's new meanings, and so forth, you know. When we were growing up, if you were bad, you were evil. But now if you're bad, you're really good. You know, If you're a bad man, you're, you're good. You know, somehow, I don't know, bad is good. It's all strange, isn't it? So uh, there are changes. So there was a need for updating because of archaic language, old language in the King James. There's also a problem of the Greek text. By this time, it becomes clear that the Greek text behind the King James is not as accurate as it could be. Remember, the King James was based on the Textus Receptus, which goes back to Erasmus 1516, remember? And he only had seven Greek manuscripts to work with, and they weren't complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament, only one of Revelation that he had. And so those Bibles, the King James and earlier, were based on the Textus Receptus. Well, over time, new manuscripts were discovered. You know, 5,388 now. Manuscripts or parts of manuscripts are discovered. And so scholars began to look at, at new Greek texts. They call it the eclectic or critical text. And that sounds like a nasty term, but it's not. Eclectic simply means we choose from all the manuscripts. We don't just take one manuscript and say, this is it. We're going to translate from this. We look at all the manuscripts and see what they have. And we see what you know the best reading is from all these different manuscripts. So we choose eclectic. It's called critical because we're making a judgment. Critical is not a bad word. It doesn't mean to criticize. It means to make a judgment. We're trying to make a sound judgment 
based upon looking at all the manuscripts, what is the original text? We're trying to identify. We're trying to identify from the manuscripts the original text as written. Yes. Do you know how many variants there are among the Greek manuscripts? I do. <laughs> Thousands. Yeah. Three hundred thousand. But well, that sounds terrible. But the problem is that you're counting every spelling thing, you know. And the idea of, of spelling of you know spelling the same way is a modern invention. Before the advent of education in American schools, people just spelled any way they wanted to spell. You know, if you look at anything written in the 1800s, 1700s, people spelled way they, any way they want to. Even the writers of the New Testament spell words differently in the same book. So the spelling was not, you know, was not always the same. So there's a lot of spelling differences in copying and, and things like that. That's what most of them are. So there's thousands. What percentage of variants change meaning? You know, certainly less than a percent. Certainly less than a percent. Tenth of a percent, something like that. But we don't get a different Bible from different manuscripts, even when we talk about the King James, you know, or the NIV, or the New American Standard. You know, we have a doctrinal statement here at our church, and you could take that doctrinal statement, and it's got verses after the doctrinal statement. Have you ever looked at it, the different parts of the doctrinal statement? Uh, but if you look at that doctrinal statement, you can look at that doctrinal statement and look at the verses, and you could use any Bible, and you'd get you get the same meaning. It would justify what's written there. You could use the King James, New American Standard, NIV, ESV. You wouldn't. You don't. You don't. You don't get the different doctrine from different Bibles. They have the same doctrine. There's slight differences in meaning. Yes. Bill, I can understand what you're talking about, but how in the world can they justify in the King James, say like Romans 8 and 1, when they actually add to a scripture that actually can change the whole meaning of it? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then the King James says, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So that implies that there's no condemnation as long as you are doing this. Yeah. Well, the King James... What are you saying? How do they? How can they? They're actually adding to a scripture. Well, they don't think. Nobody thinks they're adding. Even that that Luke twenty that Luke passage we saw. They they said some manuscripts have this. We're reporting what the manuscripts have. And so translators at the time are making their best decision, best judgment as to what the text really is. They're not trying to add or subtract or anything like that. They're trying to make the best decision they can. It's just that now. 20th century, we just happen to have all these discoveries, we're in a better place. We're in a better position to say what the original text is. But even that doesn't change doctrine. In other words, uh, people are not Baptists because they use the King James. They're not Presbyterians because they use the NIV. Or, you know what I'm saying? You can take you can, the even difference between Roman, Roman, Roman Catholics uh, Roman Catholics are not Roman Catholics because they use the Latin Vulgate. We can take the Latin Vulgate. We can take a, a Roman Catholic Bible and lead someone to Christ using that text. So these differences don't affect doctrine in that sense. They affect the meaning, small meanings of individual texts. But verses, they don't affect the overall doctrine or teaching about Christ, God, salvation, adoption, justification, redemption, sanctification. They don't change anything like that. Does that make any sense or not? 
to, to me, by them adding to that scripture, they're basically adding to there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. To those who walk in that flesh, but not the spirit. Why do you say it's supposed to end there? Okay, the first part of that, to my understanding, if you, if you take into the, the translations, basically, the second part is in King James, but it's not in the other Not in the NIV? Again. <clears throat> yes, you're right. I mean, why would they want to add to that scripture? Well, they didn't add to it. They, they, uh, I'm not going to see if I have a note here about it. Um, it's in various manuscripts. We walk not like people walk forth in the spirit. So it's in Codex Alexandrinus. It's in a number of manuscripts. So it's in a manuscript from the fourth from the fifth century. It's in a manuscript D. It's it's in some various manuscripts. So it's it's not like it's in no manuscripts. So they based it on some manuscripts. It's just today that. And probably even the Schofield has a note there about that, I would imagine, about a one, you know, who walked my flesh for that spirit. Um, so it's not that they were adding to, they didn't consciously add to. They were using the Texas Receptus. Remember? They were using the Texas Receptus, the print text they had, and the Texas Receptus had that addition to Romans 8 1. And it had it because of the manuscripts that Erasmus was using. It's that the older manuscripts don't have that. That was the same thing with that Luke passage where the men in the field. So that's that's the difference. But you know, right? Whether that's in there or not, it doesn't change any doctrine. It doesn't change the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, or anything like that. So yeah, you could say the King James attitude. They didn't intend to. They didn't intend to do anything. You know, and sometimes there are things that are left out. One of the verses that our pastor has referred to quite a few times, he says, you know, the King, I'm quoting the King James here, it says something like, Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us, you know, and that we are the sons, you know, that we have been called the children of God or something. Remember the first John three passage there. And the NIV says it goes on to say, and we are. It has this exclamation, and we are the children of God. That's not in the King James. It wasn't because they left it out. It was because they were translating from the Texas Receptus, which didn't have it. So I wouldn't accuse them of doing anything wrong, or they were doing the best they could with what they had. None of these manuscripts were discovered. They were using the, the Greek text that they knew. It was a later Greek text. So... That brings us to the revised version. The revised version on your sheets there. New Testament 1881, Old Testament 1885, Apocrypha. Now, when we get to these newer translations, you're always going to see this usual division. New Testament, Old Testament. Because when you're starting a big project like this, you, you're going to get the New Testament done first because it's you know one-third the size. So they'll, publishers will always print that, print that New Testament while they're working on the Old Testament. You won't get the Bibles combined together for later. So you'll see exactly this kind of thing. As I mentioned, in 1870, 
Dr. Samuel Wilberforce, the Bishop Wilberforce, the Bishop of Winchester, called for a revision of the King James Version. And a committee of about 65 British scholars was chosen for a revision of the King James Version. There was also a committee of 34 American scholars, headed by Dr. Philip Schaub, who was a famous scholar. He was asked to join the project. The Americans, they never went to England. They met in New York, and they had a correspondence with the translators in England, in London. And they corresponded back and forth. And what they were hoping to do was produce a version that would be accepted on both sides of the continent. In these earlier days, you know, pre-colonial days, nobody cared what the Americans thought, you know, but now <laughs> the Americans a big market over there, right? So, you know, and, English, and, and British English is different from American English, as you, well, you probably know. British English is different. So the idea was we want to bring the Americans in and cons- have them consult and let's agree and, and have, have something that can be accepted by the Americans and the British. So the Americans met, and they proposed certain decisions. The British, the British translators didn't go along with all of them. They didn't, they didn't like them all. The Americans weren't too happy about all that. So they put, their, they put their changes in an appendix to the revised version. They had a number of principles that they were supposed to work from. Eight principles. I've just put some of them up here. To introduce as few alterations into the text of the authorized version consistently with faithfulness. So they had these, they were working for, it's a revision of the King James. They're working with the King James. They're looking at the original languages. And now they have, a, they have more Greek manuscripts. So the big changes are going to come in the New Testament, in the Greek text that they use. So the text to be adopted be that for which the evidence is decidedly preponderating and that when the text is so adapted, adopted differs from that from the authorized version. So, so they, they, were, they were authorized to make changes in the authorized version in English, but also in the Greek text. Yes. I'm sorry. My oh, okay. Um, so this was a good process that they went through. I just put some of the changes up here. I mentioned that the New Testament was published in England on May 17, 1881. And in America, on May the 20th, distributed by Thomas Nelson, which disposed of 250,000 copies by day's end. Can you imagine that? Published in England on May the 17th, on May the 20th, 20,000 copies by day's end. Price from 25 cents to $16. Now, the revised version was copyrighted in England, but it was under no restriction in the United States. So anybody could print it. And the Chicago Tribune, on May the 22nd, 1881, the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Times, both Chicago newspapers, both the two biggest Chicago newspapers, the Chicago Times and the Chicago Tribune, published the entire New Testament in the newspaper on May the 22nd, 1881. Can you imagine that? The entire New Testament is published on May the 22nd, 1881. And they even had an advertisement up here. Those too poor to pay, those that are too poor to 
poor to pay can get a copy of the revised New Testament without charge. Three cents will be charged to those who can pay, and 11 cents if you want a bound copy. So they're going to give you a copy of what's printed in the newspaper for three cents, or if you want a bound copy for 11 cents. But if you're too poor, we'll give it to you free. This this uh, this is a merchant. We'll, we'll, we'll give it to you free. So this was a tremendous thing. Three million copies were sold the first year. And it departed from the King James as far as the Greek text because it used this eclectic or critical text, the revised version, from the King James. All right, let's stop here. We've gone way over. Sorry to keep you. We'll pick this up next time, all right?